I was going to tell them what I was going to do for them. And that's exactly what I did. And on on that spot, I made up the industry policy, the Ausbiotech. And you know what happened? Those two ministers said, come and have a cup of tea with us, Peter, right now. So there, there you go. My in, I went with my instinct that I can't ask for anything. I've got to say why we're going to have an industry before I make the ask. Welcome to The Problem Spaces. These are the stories at the intersection of life and business life. I'm Lisa Grogan, and on today's show, we're talking to Peter Riddles, a global science and innovation leader and visionary. Peter's Twitter description, science for everyone, sums up perfectly his lifelong pursuit of bringing the power of science to generate both economic and social benefit. We're going to take a journey through Peter's remarkable career with insights along the way about building a lifetime of work together with his passion for innovation and creativity completely embedded throughout. He's one of those people whose passion and career are intertwined. From his start as a research scientist in molecular biology, Peter has accumulated decades of experience balancing private sector roles with involvement across a significant range of boards, government committees, and academic institutions to drive game-changing initiatives around the world. Peter is just as comfortable advising a biotech startup as he is advising governments in innovation policy as he is convening international roundtables. In 2020, Peter was awarded the Order of Australia for his significant service to science, biotechnology, and innovation. I've had the privilege of getting to know Peter through our mutual interest in human-centered design and social impact. Our very first meeting in London in 2019 stretched from one hour into a few hours, as has every single meeting since. We always have so much to talk about, and today I'm excited to actually hear Peter's story in one sitting. Well, let's hope we can get through it in one sitting. So today, Peter will open up about leadership, life, and navigating problem spaces. Welcome, Peter. Hello, Lisa. It's good morning here in Australia, and it's great to be able to chat to you over our digital tools across the internet and see you looking so well. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, delighted to have you. And yes, as it must be said, uh, Peter is joining us from Brisbane. And if I'm not mistaken, at the time of recording, it's about 6am his time. So an early riser. (laughs) So Peter, let's start as we do on this show, um, talking about some early influences. And, uh, you know, some of those early influences, maybe um, it was in your childhood or or, or youth uh, growing up where maybe you recall navigating some kind of problem space or an introduction, um, you know, when you're, those eyes wide open that you realize, ah, all is not perfect in the world. And, you know, maybe some of those early influences of of what got, you know, what, what was something maybe that happened or what got you through navigating some, some challenges in your early days? Hmm. Uh, I often think about this issue about you know, having a passion, and you refer to that, and, and probably that comes across that I have this passion, this enthusiasm for science, but you know, and what it actually can do to make a difference to people's lives. And uh, so I often think that, you know, hell, I was just born that way, so it's, it's more innate than being a passion. It is just the way I am. But when I try to construct why that emerged, and I have several brothers and sisters who didn't have that passion, (laughs) they had other interests and passions, there must be something. Both my parents were what you would call ordinary Australians from the greatest generation. They went through wars and depressions and pandemics, challenges like that. My father was a tradesman, but he, he worked diligently and became an engineer. Uh, he had always a, an interest in science, and I suspect if nature took its course, he probably would have been a scientist, but he didn't, right? Um, uh, my mother was extremely bright. She got one of the highest grades in our equivalent of year 10 of high school and then went into the public service. So that's my sort of back, background. Humble parents working, um, one as a secretary, one as a tradesperson, right? But I do remember my mother telling me um, that she wanted to put me into kindergarten. This is age three, four, like preschool, and I wouldn't have a bar of it. The reason is I was already reading significant books, not children's books, but adults' books at age three and four, and they quickly worked out that if they gave me a book, then I was perfectly manageable. If they didn't give me a book, then I was unmanageable. (laughs) 
So, so that was the secret. Um, and for whatever reason, I joined a library when before I went to school. Most of the books I read were sort of scientific, natural history, geography, that kind of thing. So I would have had a natural inclination to be basically a geek, right? And probably that's how people who knew me at high school still think of me. So, so there you go. That's a self-confession. But my father, I thought, as a good parent, recognised this. And um, we moved around the state of Queensland because of the nature of my parents' work. And um, wherever we moved, there was the trunk for all the family stuff and there was the trunk for my microscope and my chemistry set and my scientific books and whatever. I had, I had it all, right? And it had to move with the family. So I was... This is just me. Um, I didn't actually contemplate that that actually that was a bit unusual. But I think one of the things that really consolidated my interest, so this is back in the, in the late 50s, early 60s when I was a young child, so I'm in that baby boomer generation, right? And um, in those days we didn't have the internet, of course. We had libraries for information. But my father um, arranged for me to subscribe to a number of what you would call journals, <coughs> written for young children, uh, and it was an English, these are UK publications. And one was called Knowledge, that's what it's called, Knowledge, and they came in magazine size thing every week and you know, 30 pages of things about knowledge. But the one that really made the difference was one called Understanding Science. And if you Google that up, you can see they now sell these things as historical things, but they were brilliantly written. Um, with photographs, diagrams, and somebody would have taken a lot of care to design these things. And I got one of those every week. So I got those two every week. My, so my father had the foresight to somehow generate something where I could get involved in this. So I was reading about science when most kids were probably thinking about the ice creams and the running around the park. Um, I, did, I did those things, but I did this stuff um, a lot of the time. So it looked like from a very early age I was destined to take the science journey. So so I, I believe I've had, I'm going to call them assets, it's probably not the quiet word, the significant assets in my life are some sort of innate motivation, intellect to do it, but a family that said, looks like he's going that way, let's help him. So that's that's the beginning. Well, and you sort of think that is the amazing investment that parents take. And sorry, I don't mean to um, minimize or, but you think about the, the the book Matilda, you know, the Roald Dahl book, Matilda and the books. And um, it's interesting in our family, because we've always had a thing, if the kids want books, you know, we, we go out of our way to get to the library or go to the bookstore and we always invest in those books. But I was going to ask, you know, before we flip into university, because it sounds like the path was pretty well defined, were there any other role models or people that you might have looked up to in that time where you might have imagined what your path was? Or was it just the love of science and that's what you were just soaking up as a young person? I think the, the role model very early on was clearly my father, right, who he had these old chemistry books and he gave them to me and I look at the pictures of equipment and things. So, that, so he was clearly the, the one that recognised where I might go. But the other role model, which I think is important, state is you know scientists have to have particularly unique values and we can come back to that if you wish but it's not just values of being a professional scientist but it's values of being part of a community and in those days the people we interact with most were the extended family the uncles and the aunts and the cousins right and the grandparents um, so on one side my father's side my grandfather served in the Royal Navy and the Royal Australian Navy and two world wars, right? And, but he was technical as well. I think that's where that came from. So he was a strong role model for, for actually work, working the hard yards to get somewhere because he had to work the hard yards. Right? There's absolutely no question about it. And he passed on that discipline and enterprise, if you like, um, and he supported my father in his support of me. That was, that's the family thing coming to bear. So. So he was certainly one. And later on, I realized he was more of an influencer than I recognized back then, as, as I did with my parents, of course. You, you look back and say, wow, they did that? <laughs> How do they know that, right? <laughs> 
So, um, and uh, then there was my mother's parents who were, were pioneers in Australia. My I'm a fifth generation European um, on my mother's side, and um, they were they had the value those country values of you know, resourcefulness, you know, resilience, adaptability. Communi- very community-minded. You know, you didn't even think of yourself as an individual back in those days. You were part of this community, and you had to work together to, to make a living. So it was it was more the role model of those values that sort of intersect with the innate interest in science, I believe. So there have been role models along the way, or mentors in the senior part of my career, but this is at the very formative stages. Yeah, At the very formative. So you did your undergrad and your PhD at Queensland University. Um, and so obviously the path would have been obvious to do an undergrad in uh, science, but maybe tell about, because you spent a number of years in, in academia, you know, you're working your way through, you had a number of different stints, you were in Cologne and Germany for a bit, you traveled around and maybe not to roll up three degrees into one experience, but maybe, you know, what was, what was the experience of, of doing your education and, um, what was what was motivating at the time to keep you pursuing that path? The hardest thing I had, I probably was always destined to go to university, as you said. And in fact, we lived in country towns, and my father and mother decided they had to move to the city where the universities were. And that was because of me and a younger brother. That's kind of what they did, right? Um, they probably would have preferred to stay in a country town. Uh, it's a very nice way of having a community. And so um, we went to to the city of Brisbane where there were a number of universities so I could go. And um, the hardest thing I had to do was I I have a polymathic brain, so I have all these interests and I, as you know, I can talk about a lot of things and think about a lot of things. Uh, I didn't know which bit of science I wanted to get interested in. So when you go to uni, you're confronted with geology and chemistry and physics and biology and so on what the hell am I going to do? So in my first year uni, I, um, I did a broader range of subjects because I didn't want to make a decision, which probably says something about me. And um, interesting enough, during that first year, there's all sorts of lectures and seminars, and I went to a lecture by a young lecturer in what was called the biochemistry department. And was, this was in the 19, um, mid-1970s, right? And so we're just on the verge of the revolution, if you like, to do with molecular biology and how that would lead into the biotech and all the things we'll talk about later. So for some reason, my intuition said do biochemistry. But I ended up doing the enzymology or the protein chemistry side rather than the genetic side, which was a really good thing because it's a highly disciplined based on the laws of chemistry um, and it made me think very rigorously in my training about the laws of nature. So it turned out to be a really good thing. So I ended up doing a Bachelor of Science, mainly doing biochemistry, a little bit of chemistry. And then we have, in Australia, you have a what's called an honours year where you do a research project built on the three years of undergraduate study. I took a year off after doing honours because, again, I didn't know what I really wanted where I wanted to be. But I got some inspiration from, I worked as a builder's laborer and a brickies laborer and all sorts of things and um, contemplated the world, which shows you the kind of generation I was in. We, we could move around a bit and take our time and we had families always in the background supporting those kind of decision-making processes. Anyway, I went back to uni uh, and um, started a PhD and I can talk about that if you want to, what we did. But it was basically with enzymes and um, working on how they work. And it was a really productive um, growth period for me because I just happened to be with a team of other PhD students. Like there's about 12 of us in the, in the whole group, which was significant for the uni. And it was kind of a very fertile area where both our sense of being an adult is maturing, but our sense of where we were going is professionally was also maturing. So... That PhD was, the decision to make that PhD then was the foundation for all the things that followed. It's amazing, isn't it? Those forks in the road, those exactly. decisions, and exactly. uh, those lucky breaks. And you think those those 12 people, um, we can get into it later, because I always think about who are the people you have around. Um, you know, you always have that as a foundation. Are you still in touch with any of those 12 people? 
I am um, not very strongly, mind you, because they're all they've all um, either disappeared or gone in a completely different direction. Because my direction ended up not being academia for all the period. So, um, but I do see a couple of them, mind you. When I say see, in the last two years, it's been digital images and not. There's that. <laughs> so I suppose you, you go through this period of your life, you have this, you know, sort of foundational experience and, and timely experience doing your PhD. And then, you know, you go into Australia's National Science Agency. And it's a mouthful, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. And you spent quite a bit of time there in a variety of roles finishing with reporting into the CEO. I suppose maybe can you talk about some of the, the transition from academic into um, career and how you started to build, I don't want to say your brand, but your credibility, how you started to make your mark in that space. It's worthwhile. Um, I'll go back to the beginning at CSIRO which is a mouthful. You you have an equivalent, by the way. It's called CERC, and Ian Stewart is your CEO. So we're, if you like, sibling organisations with similar mandates. So um, I applied for a vacation job at the CSIRO um, a couple of times, and I, and I got it, and I did, did sort of technical work there, and I worked with a few visiting professors and so on. But one day I ended up applying for a job at a CSIRO division, which was working on tropical agriculture, uh, sugarcane, cattle, all these sorts of things that are in the interest of Australia's uh, agricultural system. And um, as I mentioned before, this is right on the verge of the molecular biology um, investment. And the chief chief of the the divisions uh, decided that they wanted to have molecular biology in the division, which was a good decision, by the way. And they knew that they should probably best get somebody who was close enough to do it to be trained up. So um, they asked me if I wanted to go to Canberra, which is another city with another uni, where there was some molecular biology for a couple of months to learn. And I immediately said, there's no way I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing with a couple of months. A couple of months doesn't make you into a molecular biologist at my level. So they went away chastised and they came back and said, well, what do you think we should do? I said, well, at the very least, you're going to need a couple of years working as a molecular biologist in a credible organisation where you can really do what you, what, they, what you want to do and be strategic about it. So there's this strategic thing coming out of me already. Um, I'm doing the thinking for the bosses. So um, anyway, they acquiesced and they, they end up, well, where do you want to go? I said, well, it's either Cambridge in the United Kingdom or Stanford in um, California. So I used my mouse and found somebody who would sponsor me into Stanford. And so I went to Stanford for two and a half years, right in the thick of the development of uh, recombinant DNA, biotech. And Stanford was, in the department I joined, there were three Nobel laureates already. Um, That's the kind of standing it was. And um, it was just another formative period. And I worked on enzymes, which is my original skill, but using molecular biology approaches examine their function and action, right, and gradually morphed into having medical biology categories, which I did. And then I came back to Brisbane, and I was probably, there was one other person about the same time, but the two of us were the first molecular biologists in, um, in Queensland, and I was the first one in the CSIRO in Queensland, there were others who emerged. And I had, I had the responsibility of rolling out training, attracting investment into the space, um, that's a significant legacy, of course, that is now you don't even think about that because there are now other wonderful technologies coming on board, as you know, like synthetic biology, which are really taking off. So that that transition to molecular biology is what gave the intellectual foundation. Uh, but coincidentally, California is the home of most of the biotechnology industry in the world, as you know, and it's where it actually started with Genentech many, many years ago. Uh, through some inspirational people. So I got heavily influenced by what I saw of the industry. And at Stanford Uni, it was not unusual for somebody from industry simply to walk in and have a conversation with you, right? It was just a natural intersection. And many, even back in those days, virtually all the professors had 
some sort of startup company. And one of them had um, a company called Intelligenetics, which became Sun Microsystems, right, for example. Uh, that's just a professor with his little hobby on the side, right? That's the kind of environment it was. So um, I'm saying that because Stanford and molecular biology gave me, and the influence of the biotech industry there in the early days were these influences on how I started thinking about this, which became a significant part of the rest of my journey. It's interesting, you know, you hear so many of those Stanford stories and not even six degrees of separation, but, you know, people that are in the room together and the building the sandbox. And in the time that I've gotten to know you, it's always about building the sandbox. And so I wonder, you know, just you being immersed in that for two and a half years, um, you know, just even seeing that kind of environment, it must have been, um, you know, whether it's top of mind or whether it's just something that you went into life thinking, well, this is what you do. We've got to pull the people together. Because again, you're a convener. And I think part of this podcast, it's always talking about, okay, what was your journey? What advice would you give to people? And, you know, how did you balance life and business life? But I think here you are then, early stage career. And I'm curious, like, what were some of the realities of the work, of the problem spaces that you were going through? Did they give you a, a long lead and you could kind of go and follow your path? Or was it, you know, were you under pressure in terms of timelines and they want solutions? Like, what what was it actually like? I think it's, um, I never felt under pressure. So I can rule that one huh. out straight away. Although I think others probably did. You know, um, so um, I was what was called a, a fellow. Uh, a, you've had your PhD, so you know you're in this sort of postdoctoral period. So I was a fellow in biochemistry, and we we were probably more laid back, the fellows, than the PhD students. The PhD students, it was you know to get into Stanford as a PhD student is right at the top of the mountain, and you don't get into Stanford as a PhD student if you haven't already worked your butt off, right? Or, got some intellectual ability. They were under pressure more than the postdocs. In fact, the postdocs, we kind of provided the fabric between the academic professors and the students, uh, and it was based on cooperation at one level. I could walk down the room and talk to the guy who invented recombinant DNA, right? It was like that. Or There's always somebody, not just in that department, but in the whole number of departments around the campus. It was actually in the... Stanford University Medical Center, and there's all these medical departments, microbiology and so on, um, that you go and talk to. So I was not, I was just given a one-line direction. We're going to look at this protein, Peter, and work out work. That's it. And off, you know, you're a, you're a scientist now. You, you've got to figure it out for yourself. And you've got to go and talk to the right people, do the, read the literature, design the experiments, make errors, fix them up, and find you. And you were given great freedom um, in the bounds of that problem, right? Do it because they didn't want to. They knew you can't stifle that lateral thought that actually might end up being the solution to the problem. As soon as you give structure, that provides it starts to reduce where you might go. So on the one hand, there was great freedom and cooperation, and in fact, I think Stanford was a bit of a radical place in that sense that they put all their funding into a pool, which was strictly not the right accounting standards, right? And that pool went out to all what was needed to support the work. So um, it was an incredibly um, rich experience at every, every level, you know, professionally, personally. Um, the whole environment in California back in the 80s was very dynamic because the biotech industry was just getting traction and the whole interest in the Silicon Valley concept was well and truly really emerging and many nations had aspirations of duplicating it, but they failed to actually ask what they wanted to duplicate. Um, and that's the big issue there. So, And it's a very different culture back then to what it was in an Australian university or an Australian industry or even a UK university, right, um, and um, university industry, um, UK industry. So that taught me about benchmarking your culture and the way you think about things compared to your own culture. It was kind of a big lesson and I went home a little bit mistakenly thinking, God, this would be great if I could make this happen in Australia. Of course, I wasn't the only one who said that, of course, and ran into serious issues of you know, it 
didn't work in our economy the way it would in the US, so down the right attitude of risk or, or attitude of investment or, or entrepreneurship. So all those things we can explore, of course. So Stanford was, Stanford accelerated my transition into um, maybe understanding that you can actually do very useful things with science and not just talk about it and write about it in journals. I should say, one of the great influences was that magazine I mentioned to you called Understanding Science. It talked about science, but it actually talked about its impact. Yeah, and some of the great scientists that I remember reading about were people like Louis Pasteur, who, as you know, kind of invented vaccines, um, right, and gave the vaccines to himself. And um, um, the, the theme I've got out of understanding science, it was wonderful to be a geek and to do the research and do experiments. But at a humanity level, it was equally wonderful to actually find the benefit of that work and actually get it out there. And that's one of the key themes that I'm still doing today. That, and that emerged out of that understanding science in a, it was a latent thought or dormant thought at the back. And then I went to Stanford and I realized that great science and great impact are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're fundamentally inclusive. Because that's where I want to dig into. Like so many people have a career, you know, um, you know, it's a job and then you have your passions or your hobbies and, and so many people keep them separated. Some people, you know, really do have a vocation and you can't, but I think for you, you know, I'm curious, how did you continue to build this highly successful career that also completely embedded your passions around creativity and innovation? And it sounds like Stanford would have been, um, you know, just that, you know, sort of one of those influences. But yeah, tell me, because then you straddled after you left, you know, the National Science Agency, after many years and many different roles, then you were into private sector. And in private sector, sometimes that's more quarterly results. And yeah, good to have impact, but the profitability, you know, shareholders, all that. And, you know, you have so much experience straddling public sector, private sector, all of those, I guess, you know, how did you, was it really by design, intentional that you were going to absolutely bring these things together and that the one shall not miss the other? So there was, a, I had a, um, this question about what I do with this thing called molecular biology, which became a synonym with the word um, biotechnology. I was at the CSIRO in the library reading a magazine called Nature Biotechnology, which was a really new form of nature to do with the biotech industry, of course. And um, as I was reading this, I, I said, something popped in my head and said, you know, Peter, you need to get to know and understand this industry called biotech. Up until that point, I was a laboratory-based scientist. I was a, actually leading quite a big team by then. And um, so I didn't know what how do you get to know an industry? Well, I mean, it was only a very, very tiny piece of this industry in Australia then. And um, so I joined this thing called the Australian Biotechnology Association. It was set up by some um, strategic, um, future-thinking academics mainly who, who intuitively saw the, the potential for biotech in Australia, particularly in um, um, some of the health areas and agriculture, for example. So I joined the association and um, I figured this way I can get to understand the industry and how, how do you start a company and how do you have intellectual property and how do you bring a drug to market and all that kind of stuff. And that was back in 1998. That decision to do that then took me on this journey because um, the ABA then was already 10 or so years old, but I realised that it was still deeply rooted in thinking about the industry. It only had one industry member. And um, um, so I decided I'd make it more like an, an industry organisation. And around 1999, around 1988, yes, I went to the bio-industry organisation in the US, to which Canada goes, and it was held in New York in the Hilton Hotel and Lennon's Hotel, and there were a thousand or so people. And I was just sort of blown away by the energy and entrepreneurship and the investment that was happening. So I tried to take, again, a U.S. experience built on the Stanford scene and influence the change of this of this association into an industry organization that looked like bio. Now, my, that was purely intuitive and instinctive that I did that. And it wasn't easy to do that. 
by the Guardian. Sounds trivial, but it wasn't. But it got the attention of some um, state in Australia. We have states, which are the equivalent to provinces, but it got the attention of the Premier of Queensland, which is the probably the equivalent of your governor of uh, a province. But it also got the attention of the our federal minister for science and industry. And um, I started becoming a politician. I started lobbying these guys and their ministerial colleagues and their bureaucrats about the importance of biotech. I didn't really know whether biotech academically was important. All I knew was that I thought it was important, right? And so did a lot of other people. But it kind of worked. Um, and um, I got so many stories in that space where uh, there a whole bunch of colleagues with me who were working at this to make it kind of happen as much as it did. Um, but by doing this, by following my instinct, um, and by not, I always had an overarching design in my head of all the things I needed to do to make the industry happen. And that's a characteristic you'll see about me. I think about the system and then plug away at the bits that aren't working to make the whole system work. And often when you do that, it's not as noticeable as if you're working at the part of the system that is working, right? If you know what I'm saying. You, you'll get recognized if you work in something that's working. But if you work in something that's not working, it's harder and it's not necessarily so obvious that you've tweaked the system. So it turned out um, that the federal minister, I used to have some real interesting debates with him back then. I'm not going to say who it is. Uh, and um, But he started to realise that I was saying and doing things that were quite relevant for a whole bunch of reasons. So he appointed me to, um, we have an innovation agency in Australia. It used to be called the Industry Research and Development Board. And it had a, a really big budget back in those days. Um, yeah, I think it was $8 billion over the five years of the program to, to use, um, uh, to mobilise the R&D potential of all industry in Australia so they became more competitive and more innovative. Right? So I was appointed to that board and I was ended up being made chair of the whole of the biosciences investment. And so I recommended investment into a large number of enterprises. So through the ABA, which became Biotech, that was the name I suggested, which is equivalent to Bio or Biotech Canada in, in Canada, right? And through this board with the federal government and investing in biotechs, um, there was a third string to the bow. I started to learn about the biotech industry and how to invest in one of the drivers. At exactly the same time, um, I got headhunted to run a new biotech incubator in Queensland. So I joined, and we were involved in starting companies. So I learnt about policy, um, the industry, and how to actually start companies in the biotech. So those three things more or less happened within a year. Don't ask me how I got to get those things, but I did, right? <laughs> it, it happened that well, way. That's amazing. <laughs> well, and I love your comment, I learned how to be a politician, because that's the thing. You have to be at the table. You have to learn how to influence, put sometimes uh, you know party politics to one side in order to move something forward. And um, I'm curious because that's something I've always seen you do is pull people together. And I suppose as you're starting, you know, to, you know, be tapped on the shoulder and, you know, what that actually means. Um, and I ask this a lot of women and uh, I don't ask it so much of men, but I'm curious, like, did you ever have imposter syndrome? You know, that feeling of how am I at this table? Or were, were you, Peter Riddle's always someone that was just, I'm here? I've heard of imposter syndrome. I do um, mental women, and it, it does come up um, in a way. And I'm, I'm not, I've never ever thought what I have or haven't. And I think probably it wasn't a dimension in what I do. I, the most I felt was, um, I'm going to tell you this story because it shows the values that I developed a long time ago. Because of my role at Ausbiotech, I was the president of Ausbiotech, and because the minister saw me, two of the senior ministers of our federal government convened a roundtable of all the industry organisations. You know, these are heavy hitters, right? These, some of these organisations work in the steel industry, right? the textile industry, you know, the ag industry. They were big enterprises. Ausbiotech, we had five staff, right? And we were a small industry group, right? And, but I was asked to come along this. So I'm in this room and all these guys had their steely suits on. And um, right. And the two ministers, right, and this is serious stuff, started out and said, all right, we're, you wanted to talk to government? Well, here you are. 
tell us tell us what you want. And one bo- I happened to be by luck sitting sort of at the end of the circle, so I was probably going to be close to last uh, as they went around uh, in a clockwise fashion. And it shows how luck can work with you. Anyway, these heavy hitters were saying, we want the government to do this and we want tax here and tax-free things here and trade regulations here, we want red tape removed. And I went around and said all the same thing, what's great policy? And I said to myself, well, I won't say what I said to myself, but I said, what the hell am I going <laughs> to say here, right, this little Ausbiotech? Um, and it dawned on me, I was going to tell them what I was going to do for them. And that's exactly what I did. And on... On that spot, I made up the industry policy, the Ausbiotech. And you know what happened? Those two ministers said, come and have a cup of tea with us, Peter, right now. There there you go. I went with my instinct that I can't ask for anything. I've got to say why we're going to have an industry before I make the ask. So there you go. And I've always, to be honest, it wasn't, this wasn't uh, Machiavelli, it wasn't designed beforehand, I just thought, I've got to go with my gut here. Um, this is wrong, right? So there you go. And I, that's how I do things. So I never had imposter syndrome, but I was pretty, I was scared shitless, to be honest. So you can, you can edit, you can edit that, but I stuck to my guns um, at that moment and it paid off. It was the right, it was actually, when I look back, it was actually the right thing to do. Right. And you've got to trust that instinct in in the moment. Absolutely. Or like, I've got this and figure it out. So, okay. So tell me about, I mean, the podcast is called Problem Spaces. All right. So you've built this incredibly deep and rich career and you've, you know, managed to have all of these other experiences that are even on a voluntary basis and for good. Tell me about, I mean, when you and I met a few years ago, I'll admit I had imposter syndrome going to meet you. I was like, we got introduced and I thought, what is this guy going to want to see in me? And I was nervous going into that conversation. And then it was just absolutely one of the delights and it was wonderful. But when I met you, you know, that conversation was about you know, what happens when we um, not just support, but, but you know, proactively try to build a civil society. And again, like, tell me a little bit about, and that was pre-pandemic, let's just say, and you and I have spent some great time together pre-pandemic. What are some of the problem spaces you know, the big global, I mean, you're in big global conversations, you know, you before the pandemic, you were splitting time between Australia, UK, France, Canada, um, and other places. And tell me maybe some of your foresight, um, and whether that's pre and post pandemic about some of our biggest challenges, I suppose, um, as a society and where you see you playing a role. I think one of the things that I've always done instinctively again um, was before we try to solve a perceived problem, let's make damn sure we actually have defined and understood the problem. You've got to define it and you've got to understand it. And I think as a society, um, we get socialised into thinking that the problem exists like this when in fact it's actually over here, right? And you're... I'm not a, a social scientist, and um, but I think you, after some time in a career and working with lots of different people, but importantly in lots of different cultures, because for me it's the comparison of cultures that gives you the insights as to why one works and why one works better or not, right? And it's like comparing two different systems or two different companies or two different people. The differences are more obvious than just looking at a homogeneous set of... So I realised that... Um, I thought that maybe um, I'll give you an example, which probably shouldn't discuss too much, but you often hear that democracy is broken or is breaking down, right? <clears throat> so I say to myself, is that really is that really the problem? That's the kind of way I think about things. And it, it's actually a harder road because the easy road is to say, well, yes, it's pretty clear we've got crappy leaders and this and that, so therefore democracy is broken, therefore we need to fix that. Um, but naively, perhaps, I've concluded it's actually a, um, a different problem, and that is one of what, you know, what I call a civil society. Now, 
those words are somewhat unfashionable now, but I use them in the in the context that it's it's that bond, that cohesion, that a group of people, of communities and individuals and families have some framework to, to progress, right? And if that framework doesn't exist, you have all sorts of problems trying to solve a problem, right? As as I'm sure you can think about. So that's just an example of how I don't think it's government that's broken. You know, George, I think it was George Bernard Shaw said, um, democracy is one of those strange things where we elect people just like ourselves. And so you can see why I went back, well, maybe it's the just like ourselves that's the problem and not not the leaders. A friend of mine said, Peter, if you if you live in a swamp, don't expect anything swampy, not to be swampy to rise out of the swamp, right? So that's just right. So I'm, I'm using that as probably a poor attempt to explain, let's work on the problem. So on the side, I think about how do I optimise my civility? It's a, it's, a, it's a value that I've sort of developed, right? So rather than being um, self-centred and isolated, I always try to engage a group of people in the things I do. It's only a modest, humble thing, but if I can do that, that's you know maybe a little bit catalytic in creating a better way of working together. Without civility, we can't work together, and so you've got to build civility, and that comes from doing things together and building trust and confidence in building the things together. So now that you've met me and you had imposter syndrome, you can see that the reality was that that wasn't really an issue, was it? So I was. I was being, I was attempting to be civil and at the at the top level, so that we can do things together. Yeah, and that's what came out. I mean, I I think it just your your passion is infectious, and that's what has come out. And I, what I see from you too, you can't help but make connections. Like you you you're you know you are a true connector and a true convener. And I think I'm someone who's always like, who do I know? Who could I? But you are on another level. And so, you know, tell me about some of the volunteer work and how that drives you. Like you're doing stuff, you know, for the for the good of we need to bring these voices together. We need to pull this together. I mean, a lot of people myself included, you know, you do your community boards and you're like, okay, I've, you know, given back or whatever life is busy but it, it it just it's it's never not part of who you are how does some of that stuff drive you still so this is again a issue of values that started way back uh in childhood so both my parents had the ethos that no matter how busy they were as parents and they had five children right uh, in back in the days when women by and large ran the home and men by and large ran the externalities, right? And that was the synergy. But my mother worked long before other mothers did. Um, and she worked as a legal, started out as a secretary, but became a paralegal person. And um, so they had their, in- and that was for income. It wasn't necessarily for a vacation. Um, both my parents worked to make a living primarily, not because they had a career. That's a very different thing. So... Um, but they both worked, it's not almost not volunteer, but they spent the old concept of the tithe, you spent 10% of your time working in the community, helping the poor, right? They did that. They started, um, we call them social enterprises. Long before that word was used, they started these things to help. And my mother became a counsellor of um, uh, domestic violence um, issues long before that became a social issue, long before, right? So I, I've always instinctively, again, realise that in order to be civil, we've got to be less focused on ourselves or even our immediate environment and participate in the communities that, um, you know, are out there. And there's, the charity sector is an odd beast. It's full of um, things that don't work, by the way, but it's full of well-meaning people. And I thought the one thing I can do is connect the well-meaning with the well-working. You know, the worst thing you see is a charity that's well-meaning but makes it a, makes a mess of it because they simply don't know how to deliver whatever the service is. And I think that's the whole ethos behind social enterprise. So I just have sort of, as part of my makeup, we've always been involved in doing these things as an adjunct to the income generating pieces. And it's always been there. But I've done some great things that end up helping. So I've just left at the board of an enterprise called Hear and Say Centre for Deaf Children. And I, it was eight years ago I joined the board 
And they, they use um, the cochlear technology, which is a hearing device. It's in, actually implanted. It's actually the first functional device that intersects between something physical and the neuro pathways of the brain. It's the first example. There's many of them now. It's called Bionics. But, I, but um, that company was started by a, an entrepreneur who was interested in this, uh, this work. So it is a charity. And they've um, worked with, um, I think it's over 3,000 children and adults now. But it's not just the children you help, it's the families as well. So there's this spin-off, spin-out effect of, of benefit. And um, But, of course, during that period, bionics for eyes and feeling and legs and all sorts of things have now emerged. And I realised that the core capability of hearing say wasn't technology. It was the therapists and the audiologists and the clinicians who provided the bridge between how the technology works and providing a new experience for the person who owned the technology, right? So you, it's one thing to get an implant so you can now technically hear, but now you've got to learn to listen, make a conversation, socialise in a different way, read, right? That isn't, doesn't happen overnight, and that's what Hear and Say did. It was actually a brilliant idea, and it gave me a lot of inspiration for the best way to do a charity because you've got to have, you've got to have good governance and business principles but you've got to stick to the values of, of what you're on about. So you've got to have both to deliver deliver the impact. Well, and you've just described perfectly, you know, that that human-centered approach. You can think, oh, but this is the best solution, and why isn't it being maybe taken up? But if you don't follow the human experience and bring in that empathy. but And I've worked a lot in the charitable sector, and Overlap works in the charitable sector. And, yeah, I think sometimes groups run on scarcity mindset, and, you know, you're, you're just band-aiding after band-aiding after band-aiding. And it's kind of, you know, you've got to be able to open up and think, well, what if funding wasn't an issue? Like, what if we could just solve that problem? What would we actually want to do? Um, it's interesting, Peter, because the last time you and I saw each other physically, um, you had come up, was it, you had come up to Leeds or was it in London? I, Anyways, I met I you in Leeds and Leeds. I met you in London. They're the two occasions. I yeah, I think we met in Leeds. Um, where Overlap UK is based. And the pandemic was kind of, I think it was February 2020, pandemic was starting to be a thing. And you told me at the time, you know, half a million deaths around the world, I think, is my memory. And I remember being mind blown thinking, whoa, like that just seemed unfathomable to me. Um, I guess not to put you on the spot, but as the world emerges ish, I hate to use that word, but as you know, we're two years, it's February, 2022 now. And, um, you know, as things start to, you know, come two years out, I don't know, what's your, what's your not prediction, but what are your thoughts on this global experience that we've had and what changes? Interesting, isn't it? Um, I've got some thoughts. The first one is um, my grandparents always made me wash my hands before a meal, after the bathroom, after playing. If I didn't wash my hands, I didn't get fed. They did that because they went through the Spanish flu. Um, Hygiene at a very basic level was taught and wasn't forgotten by them, and they passed that on to me. But it it was forgotten or was neglected um, with recent generations for understandable reasons. So that's the first, the first thing, which you can apply to a whole lot of things. Right? Um, at the second observation is, um, whenever there's a challenge, your innate personality comes to the fore. If you're an optimist and constructive, you work like that in a period of challenge. But if you're, if you're like negative or have anxiety or that, it actually just gets worse. So the challenges bring out your, I believe, your innate personalities, and not always black and white like that. Um, and the really good thing is, as I watch around the countries that I know best, like Canada and the UK and Australia, watching the natural leadership of some organisations and people that was probably a little bit latent, but it just shone, right? And they provided as much as you can in this sort of crazy situation, the leadership and, this, and the solutions, right? You do see some, um, and we shouldn't pursue this, but you do some, see some negative behaviour, but we shouldn't treat that purely as negative. We should treat that as a warning or a signal that there is a genuine concern by people. And while it 
it expresses itself in an extreme way, that expression still is a sign that we should listen to and factor in, in, in dealing with it, right? It's shan't, the worst thing we can do and the uncivil thing we can do is treat people's extreme fears and dismiss them. You can't bury people's fears and expect to walk away from it, particularly at a societal level. And, and that's why I reflect again on the civility of what's happening and the challenge. And um, the third thing I'm going to say about it is um, for a variety of reasons, while this generation, and I assume your children and yourself, decades now will think about this period and probably talk about it and reflect upon it, right? Um, but I think the world has a number of other extant challenges which will probably rather quickly diminish um, our anxiety concern. Um, you can already see that happening with all sorts of things. So um, the good thing is the pandemic has reminded many of us, our systems, our society, our governments, our enterprises, you better get your act together um, with system-wide issues like this and be ready for them for the next time. And um, you know, we've got antimicrobial resistance really emerging. We've got the whole issue of not just the climate change, but the whole issue of sustainability, um, and circular processes we need to do. And then there's the function and nature of our civil societies, which are causing concern and the extent geopolitical issues that are happening in at least two parts of the world right now, which will quickly need for us to move on and deal with those problems. So I hope that's not too long-winded in saying... Um, I've got to say one other thing. As an innovation thing, right, you know, whenever I give a, a talk on innovation, I often go right back and, why do we do innovation? What, why? And then if, if there is a why, what makes it happen, right? So, um, and there's probably a, another couple of hours here, but it, it is really... Um, necessity that drives innovation and necessity can come in the form of gosh you've got a pandemic we better make a drug or a vaccine that's that kind of necessity but necessity in a free society will come from a combination of motivation and ambition and one of the things that works well in the u.s is they turn human foibles into a positive because of the the entrepreneurial process those that desire to make a difference or to you know, get power or money or whatever, all they come together in the US. And a good democracy enables human foibles to be positives, not negatives. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. I think, um, Peter, as we sort of um, we come to the close of this conversation, I think one thing I want to ask do you have a favorite piece of advice that either has been given to you or that you give out and that is your go-to? I have to admit, um, unless it's a, a perfunctory kind of thing, I often stop short of giving advice now. And rather I just say, this is what happened to me. Or I had a colleague and they were confronted with something and this is what happened to them. And this is what we talked about afterwards. So this is the effect of family up, and it may. I'm hoping this comes across to you in a positive way, and you might want to want to consider how to present this. So, as I told you, I used to get these magazines, and I used to read them. I devoured them, right? Science, and I used to read everything. I read the family's encyclopedia by the time I was in grade three several times. Right? It was just absurd, really. But one day, my mo- my mother had this. Um, it's called a coffee table book. They were was, was full of glossy photos. And, Right, and she had one on Hollywood stars right, on the coffee table, and no one took much notice of the book. But because it was a book, I read it. Right, but it was just photographs with a little bit of a story, and and I remember this always. And I only share this with people who hopefully respect the story. I was reading the book, and I was looking at all these old. These are movie stars from way way back, of course, as you imagine. Um, no one. No young generation would recognise any of the names I use if I did use them. But there was a great, um, and they were great black and white prints, right? Really well done. Anyway, I didn't know who this movie star was, but her name is Hedy Lamar, right? Extraordinarily beautiful actress and really quite famous. And my father, just by coincidence, was standing by and um, he said, she's as beautiful as your mum. Something like that, and uh, of course, both brunettes. And I said, and I didn't think of it like that. And he said, But let me tell you, and he went away to his study because he had a workshop, he had lathes and drills and 
all sorts of things as an engineer under the, under the house. And he brought back this old, um, I don't know, it was a little manila book, with pa old paper. And in there was the story of, it was a story of technology development. And in there was a story of Hedy Lamarr, because she invented a lot of stuff, including devices for helping, um, which almost is like a wireless to signal devices and was actually used during in the torpedoes to help the torpedoes, right? So here was this sort of, everyone knew, I didn't even know who she was, by the way. Everyone knew um, she was a famous actress, extraordinarily beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But no one knew that she's actually quite a brilliant scientist. And my father said to me, make sure you respect women for what they do and not just the way they look. He said that to me when I was a young teenager. That's an amazing story. And I'm going to Google that now. <laughs> I need to Google, Google up her. Hedy Lamarr. Check her out. Yeah. That's right. No um, idea, right? I mean, I knew she was her as an actress. and it was the yeah. I think that came from his my mum and he, how they, because as I told you, she worked long before others might have worked um, and out of, partly out of necessity, but they worked together. And that was the ethos that came through. So I'm, I'm hoping those values um, still are real for me today. So there you go. Oh, I'm sure they, I know they are. Okay. Two final questions for you. Um, I think I know what, how you're going to answer this, but uh, I would never predict problem solving abilities, nature or nurture. So, I'm going to reflect on a PhD. I went into a PhD with an innate, whatever reason, intellect. What the PhD does doesn't add an ability. It fine-tunes, right? It gives a professional discipline, right? But, you know, one of the most important things, this comes down to problem-solving, comes down to, I think, uh, the intersection of intellect, whatever that might be for you, how your machinery works, and experience. The experience shows you how you can apply the intellect and the experience informs and, and the two have to go together. I've met lots of brilliant people in the world who've got intellect but little experience and they're really hopeless at understanding things. And um, uh, The second thing is um, to be a scientist, and this may also relate to problem solving, it's a weird thing, you know. Um, to understand nature, you've got to leave out your personal biases, if that's the right word, or your, even your what you believe, um, because you've got to allow the, the nature to tell you uh, and that you've got to see it the way it wants you to see it. So if you have a bias or a preconceived idea about your data or about your experiments, you'll have a harder time working out the truth. And after all, scientists are about not so much about moral truth, but they're about natural truth, the, the, the truth of the universe and nature, right? So to me, problem solving means if you really want to solve the problem, brush those perceptions you have to one side for the time being, clean your mind out, right? clean your heart out, put them all out. You can get them back later, but while you're solving the problem, look at it with those acute, disciplined, undistracted eyes and intellect. That might be really good marriage advice. <laughs> I probably It may well be, actually, yes. <laughs> I think so. Okay. And this may seem a crazy question, but what might a totally alternate career path may have been for you? It was probably going to be literature. Um, of course, I'm already doing a bit of that now. I'm, I'm an amateur author, so I'm writing books on my family and um, halfway through one on innovation. And I've started a, uh, a, a cookbook, right? So I do, um, I do quite a bit of chefing and, um, I started recording the, uh, the reason why I make something. And often the things that I make have inspiration back to my mother's cooking or to a family function or an experience I had in London. And, um, or, right? So I started recording this, and it's been fun. I will take a photograph of the dish, and I've got to get better at that, and write up the little story, what was the inspiration, and, and then the recipe. So, so I would have been... And I write poetry, so I've written several hundred poems which sit dusting away somewhere and every now and then I, on an aeroplane when I've got a moment, when one of those thoughts hit you, I write it down. So I expect uh, because I had an early reading age that there's a natural affinity for literature and writing in all these different ways. So I think I would have been um, a struggling, poor, impoverished author trying to get a bestseller. <laughs> 
Oh, what a delightful way to close things. Peter, this hour has just gone by so quickly. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing so many insights and stories about your career and life. It's been a pleasure. I'm looking forward to A, the next one, and B, um, I believe we're going to have some um, internet discussions with a group of like-minded design thinkers.